Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email from a client from the past that said, Carol, I don't know how to get a hold of you anymore, but I just want to tell you that I am six years sober. I've been following your recovery tools since the day I met you, and I truly believe they are what makes a difference. Now, I got to tell you, um, I, and I emailed him back right away, and I said, you know, this is a very, very tough compulsion to manage. And as Patrick Carnes told me, it takes a committee of people and resources to get you through this. And that's why I make it so important for you to follow at least eight out of the 10 recovery tools. Now, if you've been listening to this show, you know that they're, they're fairly simple. And yet to do them consistency without complacency is the secret. So what do we do? I want you to attend support meetings, whether that's SA or SLAA or SAA or Men of the Battle, zillion incredible recovery programs. But you have to find the one that fits you, and you have to find the one that fits your availability And more importantly, the one that does the internal work that helps you to transform. And so I always say that it's important to go to at least six to eight meetings 
that is one meeting specifically, same place, same time, to see what you think about that meeting. If that's not the one for you, then you try other meetings. You know, it doesn't have to be 12-step meetings. It, it can be Recovery Nation. It's an online internet um, recovery coaching program that has you do assignments, that has you follow their principles. Just like most religions, many, many support groups are the same. They want you to attend, to make a commitment, to follow the procedures that actually work. And so my 10 tools include going to meetings, having a mentor, a sponsor, or a guide, depending on the type of meeting, doing the program material reading every day, I recently had a man that was really proud because he had read 60 pages on a Sunday. And although that was really good work, that is not the same as doing a paragraph or a page every day. I equal it to reading spiritual stuff. Because when you read anything about spirituality, there's something that usually talks to you and what your issue is. Okay, now that fourth tool is doing the work itself. Most of you know on a 12-step program, that means doing the 12 steps. And they are outlined for a reason. Those 12 steps work. What do you do next? You create a fellowship. You know, I'm a big believer that a lot of you have experienced trauma in your life. And that post-traumatic trauma, if you will, has caused you not to be vulnerable and not to be able to trust. And so one of the things that I know is that many times in these 12-step recovery programs, you can develop a family of choice, a fellowship, if you will, to help create and support you as you work through the hardest work of your life. All right. So then what do you do? That's the first five steps. Go to meetings. Find a mentor, sponsor, or guide. The program literature. Do the internal work. Create fellowship. And then I can't say it enough. Number six is find a certified sexual addictions therapist. And I told you how to do that. Go to sexhelp.com and look up your zip code, your city, your country, and find a therapist that you can preferably do face-to-face with. Find one that fits who you are and what you want to do. I say that because clearly... You've got to be able to go to a specialist if you want specialized help. And too many of my clients have not gone to a certified sexual addiction therapist, a.k.a. a CSAC. And they, they spin their wheels or they get bad advice from therapists that want to do, want to help them, but instead they do harm. Then, if you remember, Patrick Carnes told me 
if there was one thing he would encourage me to do in working with clients is start a sex addicts group, a therapy group. And I remember talking to our guest tonight, Stephanie Carnes, and I said, you know, I want to write a manual and I want to do a presentation for um, ITAP and I want to help CSATs. And Patrick Carnes had told me, start a sexual addiction therapy group. And Stephanie Carnes, Dr. Stephanie Carnes, who I'm going to be interviewing tonight, said, well, could you tie it into the recovery task? Because that really endorses what we believe in. It's kind of like the 30 tasks to getting healthy, just like the 12 steps to managing your recovery. So I did. One of the things I do, and I hope you will too, is when you get good mentorship or when you're working with the best, you heed the advice they give you and you follow it with a vengeance. My coaching principle is that the universe loves speed. And so when somebody tells me something, I get right on it. Why? Because it's probably pretty wise that I do. But more importantly, if I don't, life gets in my way. Okay, so go to a CSAT of six. Go to a a sex addictions therapy group, which is different than a support group, is seven. Do one of these three at least. If you can do two or three of the three, great. And that is pray, meditate, and journal. All of those techniques help you to get centered, to get resourced, and to hear your own inner voice, which most people believe actually comes from spiritual realm. Regardless, it is good to slow down and be still. So that is number eight. Number nine is to read information about compulsive sexual problematic behavior, about sexual addiction, about problematic sexual behavior, We don't care what you call it, but when you read literature that helps you understand that this disorder is a brain issue, you'll have less shame. And when you have less shame, you're more motivated to work on you. And so that's number nine, reading other materials, not just program materials, but materials that help you understand the brain. Now, a caveat. You all know that I wrote Help or Heal, an empathy workbook to help sex addicts. To, well, you can read other materials too. And tonight I'm super excited because I have Dr. Stephanie Carnes. Of course, that's Patrick Carnes' daughter and the president of ITAP. And she is going to be talking about her new book that is being released April 15th called Courageous Love, A Couple's Guide to Conquering Betrayal. And we all know that there just aren't enough books out there to navigate you through what it's going to take to rebuild a fractured relationship and create increased vulnerability, increased trust, 
and intimacy. So that's what she's going to be talking about tonight. And I'm super excited about that because I believe that if you are part of a couple, you too deserve to heal. But you have to have a roadmap that navigates you through that healing because there is so much trauma and so much uh, emotional dysregulation that it's hard for either one of you, the addict or the partner, to know what to do. And if you're single, I believe that you have to work on your own recovery, just like the coupleship, but you also need to develop the intimacy relational skills too. And so we're going to be talking next week about how do you do that if you're single. In the meantime, I want you to know that Dr. Carnes is sharing her best strategies for cultivating honesty, and she's going to talk to us about what couples can do to rebuild their relationship and rekindle that intimacy. So it's going to be packed with information that's going to help you as an addict in recovery or who wants to understand more about what she can do to make things better. Um, it's, and it's, it's an exciting time, and yet it's a tough time right now because of COVID-19. There are so many people that are either in total isolation, they're all by themselves, or they are with their families, and there's nowhere to get away and continue to explore their own needs in healthy ways. There's so much anger and sadness that it's very difficult to process feelings when you are in a three-bedroom apartment with a family of five, and we know that. So we want you to reach out. We want you to share your struggles, and you can do that with me by emailing me at carol at carolthecoach.com. And I'll tell you what, there are a lot of free resources that are going to be available um, At the end of the show, I'll be talking about a few. But there is no doubt that when you can get a good workbook or Courageous Love is a couple's guide, it is a guide to how to work through this betrayal. Um, It can help set your life in motion to do the next right thing. And that is always important, in part because we know that you have to just kind of do things one step at a time, but there are certain things that are important to do in conjunction with building trust and honesty. You know, the first thing we talk about is, boy, you really have to have some good recovery. It'll be interesting to see what Dr. Stephanie says, because I'll tell you, I know that when I'm talking to men about working, I ask them to at least have 90 days sobriety before they expect anything from their wives and before they can start a disclosure process or anything. So I can't wait to hear what timeline she might recommend um, 
She's been in this field for a long, long time, and we are just super excited to have her on the show tonight talking about her new book, comes out April 15th, called Courageous Love, A Couple's Guide to Conquering Betrayal. So, Dr. Stephanie Carnes, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi, Carol. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I am so excited, and you know that I am. Um, This book sounds like the perfect opportunity for both the partner and the addict to work together simultaneously um, to figure out what they can do to get healthy and rebuild trust and intimacy. So tell us a little bit about this book and what made you decide to write it? Sure. Um, well, and I just a little minor correction. It's actually not going to be out until about the 25th of April. Um, and it's a book for couples to work on together. And there's not a lot of recovery literature out there that the couples can actually read together and work through together. And so it's for any couples that have experienced any kind of betrayal, trauma, so uh, infidelity, porn addiction, sex addiction, and it's for them to work through their healing process together. And so it takes them through the process of understanding betrayal trauma and helping part, uh, the addict help the, uh, you know, respond sensitively to the partner and their PTSD and through disclosure and the healing process post-disclosure to reintegrating healthy intimacy and healthy sexuality. So it's sort of the whole journey um, all in, in one spot. <laughs> well, I know, and this is the first time that you've ever written a couple's guide, and you call it Courageous Love because it is such hard work, but it really does create couples that are stronger than 80% of all couples out there when they do their work. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. I tell that to the addicts that I work with all the time because they get discouraged. And I'll often say, mm-hmm. you know, recovered addicts can make, recovering addicts can make great partners. <laughs> and I tell that to my, to my partners, too, because, you know, they learn so many skills in recovery that make them great partners. And really, they can bring that back to the coupleship. Um, and so, and both, both parties in recovery learn a lot about, you know, intimacy and they learn that in their therapy and their group process. And, um, so they learn a lot of skills that make them better in relationship. Well, absolutely. And you, like myself, believe that there's a certain, um, procedural, code that you need to follow. I mean, first of all, their recovery is so important. If they are slipping and sliding all over the place, nothing they're going to be able to do will make that partner feel safe. So I was just saying before you came on the show, I I wonder what amount of time you would recommend that they really get a good handle on recovery skills and recovery support before they start on something, let's say, like the disclosure. Yeah, so um, I actually, I don't know, Carol, if I've ever mentioned this to you, but I did a little research study on disclosure um, a couple years ago, and there were some things that were really helpful to have on board. What I I wanted to look at in the study was what made disclosures go better and made them least traumatic to partners as possible. And one of the things that came up is 
um, they definitely had to have a minimum of 30 days on, of recovery under their belts. Um, and if they had 12 step, if they were involved in 12 step, and if they actually had done a little trauma work, they, the, uh-huh. statistically the disclosures were better. And so I know that there is a real balance between, um, you know, the partner's needs and the addict's needs in the moment with, with both parties because for, for the partner, it's also you can't, um, you know, ask them to wait forever. You know, it's like their world has just been blown up and you don't get, you know, it's kind of like you don't get to uh, wait, you know, you know, six months to send in the ambulance. <laughs> they need to start right, their exactly. healing process. So there's a, there's a, a balance between, um, you know, getting some, reco- you know, we want the addict to be genuinely in recovery and to be invested and really demonstrating those accountability behaviors and showing up in, um, you know, really being surrendering to the recovery process. Um, because otherwise, one of the things that happens is that you know, if they're riding the fence of recovery, they're not honest, they're not, then you end up having to do another disclosure later. And so it can actually be more damaging um, if the addict isn't truly in recovery. So we really want that addict to have that baseline of recovery. Um, And we also have to take the partner's needs into consideration. You know, when partners are um, really struggling with their, you know, with PTSD, and they have a lot of questions, and they need those questions answered. So you really, from a couple perspective, you're balancing the needs of the system. And that's not always easy to get the, you know, the timing right. But typically, the typical path of disclosure is usually, um, you know, land somewhere within like, two and a half to four months. Um, you know, after the addict gets into recovery. That's kind of typical. Um, Now, there are times when you have to expedite that because of different clinical reasons. Um, You know, you have a partner that's really, um, you know, has, you know, is really suffering, has a lot of questions, or, you know, there are times when you might have to, or there are safety issues and things like that. Um, But for generally speaking, we try and, you you know, somewhere between two and four months. It's pretty typical. Well, absolutely. And I think you are even a little bit more generous than I am because I say 90 days. And then you and I both know that to do a therapeutic formal disclosure requires that somebody work exclusively with the addict to help him come up with a timeline of his acting out. For our listening audience, if you've never heard of a disclosure, that is a formal document that he writes out to the partner if she indeed wants that disclosure. We as therapists and clinicians recommend that, and most of the time a partner does want that, but on occasion they don't, and if she doesn't, she's probably not ready. But in the meantime, Mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about you want the addict to understand the betrayal trauma symptoms that um, his partner is feeling because, It can seem so overwhelming and daunting to want to share the truth with somebody who looks like she's bleeding out, if you know what I mean. Right, sure. We want that partner to have a lot of support on board, hopefully have, you know, be in their own support group if they can, have their own therapist. And I agree with you completely with the the addict's preparation process because they really have to, it, it takes a lot of work 
to get all that information written in a manner that isn't going to traumatize the partner, first of all. Um, you know, we want them to really um, demonstrate accountability and acknowledge all the gaslighting that they've done. Um, so they really have to, they have to lay out all those behaviors um, and it takes a long time to consolidate all this, that information. So what I usually do is I do extensive testing with them. We get information from the tests. I do, they do a whole uh, sexual timeline. They do their first step. And so we use these things to consolidate information and put it mm-hmm. on, the, on the disclosure document. And that takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And I know that you, we both believe that identify what questions does she want answered that are in direct response to his acting out. And so it's not like, do you love me? But the questions have to be, how many times were you to the prostitute? How much money did you spend on your acting out? When during the day or night did you typically cheat on me? So that she can put all those puzzle pieces together and begin to make sense of how this happened without her even knowing about it. And that's why you and right. I both also agree there is no such thing as co-addiction anymore. We don't look at that. We understand that a partner had no idea what was happening until discovery. And by discovery, for our listening audience, that's when he either confesses on his own or she finds out through um, you know, a text message, uh, looking at phone records, whatever it would be. Right. I want to ask you, you believe it is so important for addicts to get honest about their behaviors, and this disclosure is really an empathetic way to be honest, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's interesting if you look at the research on coupleship, if we're looking, you know, focusing on long-term success for couples. So, um, I don't, you're, Carol, you're probably familiar with uh, Dr. John Gottman's research, he is, you know, uh-huh. one of the leading researchers in, in marriage counseling. And one of the things is he's done research that shows when a betrayer is open and willing to answer the, the partner's questions, that that couple has an 89% survival rate. And when they are not willing to answer questions, that goes down to 50%, like 55 or something like that, about 55% survival rate. So that's hugely statistically significant. So it's really hard when you, when the partner has had a lot of betrayal, if they don't get those answers, you have this dynamic in the coupleship where they're just constantly wondering what happened. They're trying to put those puzzle pieces together and it creates um, an interactional pattern between the couple that is not tenable. And, you know, couples cannot, just, you know, continue to do that on an ongoing basis. You have to disrupt that cycle. And that's what a facilitated disclosure is designed to do. It's, you know, designed to put all the information out there and give the partner the answers, um, you know, to to uproot the, the lies and the gaslighting so they really have a full understanding of everything that's happened. So they don't have to keep on guessing and wondering uh, it's just a very painful place for partners to be. It's really not fair to, to, for them to not get those questions answered. And so it's a really important part of the healing process for the couple. 
Yes, and your book, Courageous um, Love, helps people to understand what a disclosure is and what the steps are so that they can begin to identify how they're going to find a specialist to facilitate this process. I mean, obviously, I had my training in 2007, and back then we were talking about disclosures and how to do that with couples and how to even include family members if we wanted to. You have been doing this work for a long time, haven't you? Uh, Indeed. (laughs) About over 20 years now, yep. Well, and I remember that you taught specifically, you know, obviously the faculty all decides what they're going to teach, and you taught disclosures because you felt it was really important to address the family, the partners, and the sex addicts together. So for any of the clinicians or coaches that are listening right now, just know that this book will also help you to identify what is a full disclosure and And how do you go about doing that? And, Stephanie, I love the fact that you integrate different couples that have been through all of the processes in your book so that you can kind of see clinically how does this work. And if you're a layperson just reading, because obviously you wrote this for men and women that are suffering through betrayal trauma, they also have an idea of, where they fit into the norm of is this normal behavior that I'm so angry or is this normal behavior that I feel so much shame or is this normal that I want to go into defensiveness and and argue back and gaslight and how do I not do this? So it really is a guidebook to help anybody who's experienced any kind of betrayal um, learn how to be better, get healthier, and work through the process if they so desire. Absolutely, absolutely. And it is really important if there are listeners out there that are going to go through the disclosure process to work with therapists that do have training. That was one of the things that came up in my research study. I did compare people that had therapists that had training versus those that didn't. And there's a lot of well-meaning therapists out there that they just don't know what they don't know and will kind of Mm -hmm. charge into doing something like this and not have the background. And you really want that, um, you know, you want that therapist. So ask them about their experience, ask them if they've had formal training and if they have a regular protocol that they use, because you want this to go well and really using Mm -hmm. a process that's more structured and really it has a, a format and a process uh, it, it helps just everybody feel more safe and secure and know what the expectations are, which really helps the process unfold um, in, in, better. Um, so I, I can't encourage people yeah. enough to, to do that. We all have our own nightmares of what we've heard people go through with disclosures and One of those nightmares is that I had a woman who had been through three disclosures with her husband, the first two being botched, the third one was with me. But during the second one, she showed up for her disclosure, and it was a 50-minute session in the middle of the day on her lunch hour. And when you get the kind of information in a disclosure that talks about 
all of his behaviors and the time frame and frequency, you know, you have this sample workshop that talks about what did you do, how often did it happen, where did it happen, give a brief description of what happened, what, how much did it cost, how much time did it take, and how did you hide it? I mean, that kind of thing, my disclosures are a minimum of three to four hours. And this poor woman had to do it in 50 minutes. And, of course, this person did not, he did not pass the polygraph. And um, the other thing I love about your book is you talk about those other two empathy processes that occur after disclosure, which is, of course, the emotional impact letter and the restitution or amends letter. And I'm so glad you endorsed that because a lot of clinicians don't know to do the full meal deal. And I, I feel it's so helpful in establishing that trust, kind of closing up one chapter and then beginning to build an understanding of what really occurred in this person's compulsive life. Yeah, it's so important. I just actually did a disclosure a couple weeks ago, and the partner um, did her – well, the disclosure was probably about a month ago, and the impact letter was just like a week ago. And her sharing, her ability to share with the addict, she was so descriptive in her letter about how this unfolded for her and the pain that – you know, what what she went through. It was so heart-wrenching. And it was so cathartic for her. She was, you know, I, I mean, it was like she was 10 times lighter after she left. It was just such a, an important part of the process. And it's, it's really, you know, when, when an addict, when you do a disclosure, it's kind of like the addict is giving all this information and the partner needs the opportunity to really let the, part, the addict know how it's impacted them. And it's not a, an anger letter. It's not a, you know, it's, it's really sharing their grief and pain. So the addict gets an understanding, which is so important for his or her recovery to have the, you know, to have that empathy and understanding of how their, the consequences that their addiction has had on their loved one. And it's just, you know, it's such an important part to close that process. And throughout both parties need so much support. And so, you know, what I would recommend is anybody going through, like we do safety plans. I always have somebody come with them and really, you know, have Mm -hmm. a, you know, bring a friend to a disclosure so that they have people in place, but not just that, but also through the impact process and the emotional restitution process can be very emotional. We, the impact letter we just did last week was four hours. We took four and a half hours mm. to process that. And it was incredibly emotional. And, um, but it was so important. It was so important for her to be able to do that and share that. And um, so it's, you know, the, the disclosure isn't just about, you know, kind of dumping or putting the information out there. You really have to think about, you know, repairing the attachment, the wounded attachment in the relationship and, you know, trying to heal the coupleship because disclosure is ultimately for repair of the coupleship. Um, And so you can't leave those other parts undone. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And there's all sorts of ways to do that, but I know that 
clearly that emotional impact letter, as you indicated, is cathartic. And then the restitution letter, which for people out there, if you've never heard of these terms, it's really important to read this book, Courageous Love, A Couple's Guide to Conquering Betrayal. I'm talking with Dr. Stephanie Carnes, and she just spells out point after point after point uh, about how to work through betrayal trauma, how to understand it, how to do the disclosure, the emotional impact letter, and the restitution letter. And Stephanie, I got to say that that restitution letter that the addict writes, which is really just a, it's a hard process for him, but it's, he is reflecting back what he heard, what he heard, and how he heard that he hurt her. And I'm telling you, so many women say to me, my gosh, that was a game changer. To, uh, to see that yeah. he really got me. He really saw my pain, right. and he didn't fight it. He actually embraced and knew that he had caused it, and he wanted to change it. He wanted to repair it. Now, he doesn't really right. say that in the letter because all he's doing is really repeating back the pain. But when he can do right. that without defending himself, wow, the partner goes, oh, my gosh, he hurt me. And now I feel a little bit safer with him. Right. It's the addict's opportunity to say, I get this. I get it. You know, I really get how much I hurt you. And it's, part, it's an important part of the amends process. You know, we want the addict to acknowledge verbally that it's in, you know, with depth that he, he or she really, you know, really understands, really gets it. Um, and also with, uh, amends is also starting to live differently, behave differently, show up differently in the relationship. So we want all the other behaviors to fall in line. We want accountability and transparency and openness and, you know, sharing recovery and, um, you know, following up with, you know, share, you know, check-ins with each other every week and really working to be different in the relationship. That's also a part of amends is living amends and living differently and that's a really important part of the healing process as well. Well, absolutely, and that's what I believe this book really stressed that I also stressed and help her heal because so much of the work, the reparative work that the couple needs to do and the addict needs to do is to listen and to know how to do that. And they need to know reflective listening and mirroring and how to check in with each other every day to talk about struggles and to know it's okay to talk about struggles and to know about it's okay to talk about successes and what you appreciate about your own recovery and your partner. And I mean, it's all a form of intimacy when, when couples do it with regularity, sincerity, as you said, authenticity and transparency. Right. Right. It's so important. And then also, it's not just, oh, it's also, you know, after the emotional restitution process, you know, I think it's important for couples to keep in mind, this is the beginning still of their work. I mean, they've gotten through a huge, very important piece, but, you know, we look at recovery for, you know, addiction as a three to five year process. And I believe betrayal Mm -hmm. trauma is also a three to five year process. 
So, you know, if this is all the, you know, the disclosure and impact process is done in the first year, it doesn't mean that you just walk away from couples therapy. You still need to engage in intensive work to continue to heal your relationship because this is a long-term process and it takes what one of the things that I tell my addicts all the time is the only way to restore trust in a relationship. The only way is reliable mm-hmm. behavior over time <laughs> and you have to have show up and be there, be present, be different, be in recovery, demonstrate recovery for a long, long time. And you have to be patient. Both parties have to be patient. This isn't something that just, um, you know, is, you know, you do a, you know, a few processes and then it, you get over it. It doesn't work like that mm-hmm. for couples. Well, I, I know. And, you know, one of the drawbacks of this work is that sex addicts will do a really good job of developing that empathy. They actually like themselves because they're doing it and, and, and they're doing it well and they're really working away from some of the ineffective strategies that you talk about in your book, like minimizing and shifting blame, and you indicated it earlier, gaslighting and empty promises. So they really work hard on that stuff. And for a while, it doesn't seem like it does any, it makes a difference. Because she can't trust the changes she sees. She's been duped for so long, she's not letting that guard down. She's going to wait right. and see if it can, if it tests time, and that can be hard for an addict because he's so happy he's doing this work. It's like he wants to be acknowledged himself, and I know you've said it, and right. I've said it too. We've heard partners say over and over again, "I'm not going to be your cheerleader for doing the right thing," and and right. they get so crestfallen, <laughs> but. But we understand that. They want to be noticed for their changes, and she does not want to celebrate him for being what is normal. And so addicts right, out there, right. you've got to continue to do this. You've got to stay patient. And I say you've got to be able to contain her feelings and hold them while she really tests you to make sure that you are going to follow through and walk your talk. That's what I say. That's right. I think one thing that they can do is in that situation, because I've heard that so many times, it's like they, they're in their group. They, you know, they're doing their recovery mm-hmm. work. They're doing their 12-step work, and they feel so different. They feel relieved. They feel, you know, they're so changed, and they're learning so much in their groups, and they feel transformed. But the partner isn't with them in their group all the time, and they don't see everything that they're doing. So one thing that they can do is share their recovery. They can share what they thought about in the meeting today. They can be more open. They can be more vulnerable about what they're processing in their therapy and what's going on for them. So it doesn't. So the partner isn't guessing and doesn't have to ask. I like to have the addict initiate that, you know, that some of these conversations that bring the partner in and make them feel a little bit closer. It helps them to start maybe trusting that some of these changes are happening, but that requires vulnerability. And it's hard when your partner is angry at you 
to start opening up and being vulnerable and sharing. Mm -hmm. But that's exactly what needs to start happening is some genuine, um, you know, sharing about what's going on in recovery. That helps a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, and you have this incredible model. You know, I'm like, Empathy is my middle name. I love this subject. I love how it develops into intimacy. And you've got this wonderful acronym, and it's a model, actually, for empathy, and it's SUPPORT. And would you tell our listening audience what SUPPORT stands for? Because it's amazing, just amazing. (laughs) Sure. So, um, yeah, I I teach this to my addicts all the time, and I I teach this to them in group and when I'm doing lectures and things to them because it's so easy And, you know, one of the things that I tell them is if you can just get the first two steps right, you're going to be on such a different trajectory (laughs) than you normally would. And so it's basically Mm -hmm. the support model is is any time that the partner is triggered and is coming to you upset about something. Um, So something's happened or some trigger has come up and they're upset. So um, the first step is for the addict is to just stop and give them their undivided attention. And the second one is to really understand. So, uh, which is, if you think about what would normally happen, the addict might try to deflect or not, you know, kind of move on and try to, you know, get out of the conversation. So it's a totally different response. If you stop, give them complete undivided attention And when I say understand, I mean really understand, which means actively listening. So when did this happen? And what are you thinking? And what's going through your mind right now? And so like actively asking questions. And what I tell the addict is I want you to take your head off and not think about anything, any response that you're going to give. I want you to put, try and put yourself in your partner's mind and completely understand what's going on with them. So you know, what, when did this come up and how, and how are you feeling about it? And what are you thinking about it? And give me all the information. So first of all, the partner feels like they're treating it seriously. Second of all, they feel heard just off the, you know, from the first two steps. So the S is stop, give them your undivided attention. The U is understand. So that's really easy and straightforward. Then Um, The P's are provide empathy and provide validation. So, oh, I'm so sorry that happened. I can totally get why you would feel like that. You know, so just comments and coming from a very compassionate stance towards the partner of I can understand why you would be so upset about that. So the Uh O is openness. So be open if they have any questions about what happened. Um, so, like, I can give you an example with one of my couples that I'm working with right now. Um, well, how about I finish the model, and then I'll give you an example. Um, the R okay. is, remor- is respond with remorse, which is just, you know, demonstrate that, you know, a contrite attitude. And then the T is touch. So provide touch if the partner is open. So sometimes a little cuddle or a hug can go a long way in those situations. And many times, you know, at the beginning, that when the addict is using the support model, they may not see, you know, when the partner's just gone through a disclosure, there still may be, 
you know, a, a lot there. But if they keep on, you know, the, then the partner might not respond, you know, right away to the model. So keep on using it. Some, you know, you have to keep on going with it. And if you keep on doing it, the partner starts to feel heard and understood. And you then uh, he or she can bring his, his or her triggers to you so that um, you can come together as a couple. Um, so like, for example, we had, I had a couple and just this last week where um, he had uh, smoked cigars with his affair partner and he still had the cigar cutter in his glove compartment in his truck. So she went mm-hmm. to the glove compartment, found it, and was very upset about this, right? And um, right. so what happened is what he, he did not respond very well at first. His, you know, he kind of gaslit her and said, you know, it's in there for when I'm playing golf, which is a totally – you know, that just, she just, it just blew up. It was not a very empathetic response. So she didn't feel heard. Her PTSD wasn't addressed. And so, you know, if he had gone in and said, what's going on for you when you see the cigar cutter, what are you thinking about? And what are you upset about? For her, what it was is that she felt like she was going to be replaced you know, that all, all her abandonment stuff came up. And once he understood that, and, of course, we process this in couple therapy, once he understood that, he was like, oh, he didn't get defensive anymore. You know, that t- took the defensiveness right off the table. So sometimes just understanding where your partner is coming from, like really trying to understand what's going on for them. So what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What's coming up for you with this? It really helps you know, close that communication loop so you really understand each other. And so, um, you know, they were able to do it differently in the couple therapy using the model. So you just, you know, support, stop giving them your undivided attention, understand, provide empathy, provide validation, um, be open, um, show, demonstrate remorse, and then touch if the partner's open. So, yeah, it's a, it, it's a very helpful little acronym. Absolutely. And you said, you know, provide touch if the partner is open to it. And that is clearly important to ask the partner. Most of my partners actually do want touch. They just don't want to have to ask for it. So when the addict is being empathetic and he's using your support model, then he's much more able to give her a touch that actually feels good and creates more physical intimacy in a safe way. You know, just the other day I was working with a couple. He's been in recovery a good year, and um, his partner had gotten triggered, and it was recommended that he give her a nice, solid hug pressing against the back of her vagus nerve. Well, the vagus nerve obviously Mm. runs from the cranial um, part of the brain all the way down through the parasympathetic and sympathetic organs. And she felt Mm -hmm. so taken care of, and it, it was a tight, loving hug that didn't smother her but actually made her feel very secure. And, and our partners are looking for that once enough listening and empathy and recovery has occurred, 
that they can begin to trust again. And, and so I love the support model. I'm going to be using it. One of the things I do, Stephanie, is that I, I quiz my guys all the time. You know, I ask them, I will ask them, what are the first seven recovery tasks? I want you to know what those first seven are. They're the most important to your initial recovery. And, you know, they know, okay, yeah, number three is definitely surrendering. And, yeah, number two is understanding my addiction. And, you know, and, and they really begin to understand the process because of that. So one more time, listening audience, her word is the support model. It's support. S stands for stop and give your undivided attention. You is for understand where the partner or, yeah, where the partner's coming from. P is for providing empathy. The other P is for providing validation. And you all know that's part of my ABR is providing validation and acknowledging the pain. And then O is for being open. R is for showing remorse. And T is for touch. So write that down. Get this book because those kinds of models make it so easy to understand. And that's what you've done. You, you've worked in this field so long that you get what they need to know most. And, again, with your yeah. case studies, it really just helps people to see themselves in each one of these cases. Now, you mm-hmm. took on a big task here because you actually believe that couples can start rekindling the romance and the intimacy. And, boy, that is tough work. That happens somewhere between years three and five after a good recovery has been established. So tell our couples what they can look forward to in reading the book about rekindling romance and intimacy in their relationship. Yeah, I think it's really important to, like, as you say, not jump the gun on that um, for, mm-hmm. for couples and not rush into it. But I do think that couples really vary in their ability to get back into that. So I have had couples that have taken, you know, really long, you know, where it's just the partner's in so much pain, they can't even think about it. Um, and then I've had couples that were able to um, move through a little bit quicker depending on where they're at. So I think it's just really something to work with your couple therapist on and, you know, um, help, you know, let the therapist help guide you through that process. The most important thing is the emotional intimacy and connection. So if you, you know, because without that, it's very hard to have the foundation of safety, um, you know, sexual safety that's needed. And so, you know, you can have a partner that if, when you're trying to kind of reintegrate there, a partner can get really triggered um, uh, about the betrayal. And whenever that happens, I just say you, got, you really need to just dial it back and go back to the emotional closeness. So, what's going on for you, what's coming up, and, you know, really allow there to be space for emotional connection as the priority. So um, that's really important. Um, so there's a, but there's a lot of different areas. One of the things I think that addicts, I think both addicts and partners fear is that, you know, they're not going to have, you know, that they may not um, be able to revitalize that sexual relationship. So, um, having a bit of a vision 
of what you would like as a couple can, I think, be helpful. Mm-hmm. So I have them do um, – it's sort of a play off of the three circles method of the recovery mm-hmm. circles that the addicts use for their sexual health plan, uh, but it's for the couples, mm-hmm. and uh, it's for the couple to do together. And I think it's important – um, and I have it, it, it's a heart, three heart worksheet in the, in the workbook. Um, so I have it laid out so that, um, both the addict and the partner put things, um, it, it's, I also always look at this as a working document because you might have something where the partner may not be ready to do any of the things and, you know, or there may be many things that the, the couple may not be ready to do in early recovery that changes over time. Um, so, for example, I have a bowl right now where the partner is, um, there's certain sexual behaviors that uh, she feels that he picked up uh, during his addiction and not with her. And so she doesn't want to partake in those behaviors when they're together. She doesn't want him doing those because it's a trigger for her. And so initially we've put those on the inner circle because that's where she's at. So, um, you know, basically the middle circle is includes the addict's bottom lines, um, things that Mm -hmm. they are not going to be doing in their recovery, but it also includes anything that the partner is uncomfortable with. Um, and then you have the middle circle, which is the boundaries, um, that both parties have. So anything that takes away from the emotional connection and intimacy that you might have as a couple. So like, for example, I had a couple that, um, they would, whenever they talked about money at night, they would fight and it would just pull them apart. So they put um, talking about money at night in their middle circle, you know, things like right. that. Could well, that be a very much a yeah, very much a detraction from their intimacy. And then the outer circle, they um, is their recovery behaviors as a couple, things that contribute to their friendship, things that contribute to sensuality and nurturing for each other, things like foot massages and back rubs and you know, hugging and fun things and, and then also their sexual intimacy. What is their vision of what that's going to look like? And can there be exciting, fun aspects of that that they can both look forward to? So even if they might not be ready for that right now, it's sort of a way for them to kind of look at what that vision is for themselves. Well, I, I love this book. I'm talking with Dr. Stephanie Carnes. She wrote Courageous Love, A Couple's Guide to Conquering Betrayal. I heard it was coming out April 15th. She's just given me the bad news that it's not coming out till the 25th. So you have to wait 10 more days beyond the 15th. <laughs> Printer problem. We've got, we've got 30 seconds. And I can't thank you enough for coming on, talking about this book, I can't wait for it to come out so that you can come back and let us know um, how it's working and what people think about it because it is definitely something that this community has been hungering for. Thank you so much, Stephanie. You're great. Thank you for having me, Carol. Well, you know I love it, so do come back on anytime, and good luck. This is a, this is a game changer for sure. Thank you. Uh-huh. 
So that was Dr. Stephanie Carnes, and obviously this book is coming out by the end of the month, April 25th to be exact, Courageous Love, A Couple's Guide to Conquering Betrayal. Well, you know, there's only one of you at all times. Fearlessly have the courage to be yourself, and if you're in coupleship, get this book. We'll catch you next week for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach.